On this Memorial Day, a special episode of The Times. It's a crossover edition with our colleagues and podcast neighbors, Jen Yamato and Tracy Brown of Asian Enough. We have Jen and Tracy's intimate conversation with award-winning actress Sandra Oh. They talk film, they talk TV, and all about Sandra's latest starring role in the upcoming Netflix dramedy series, The Chair. Sandra plays the first person of color to ever head the English department of a prestigious university. But really, they talk more about real stuff, like just what does it mean to be Asian enough in America these days anyway? I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's May 31st, 2021. Texas is expected to pass some of the strictest voting measures in the U.S. this week. Dozens of political candidates have been murdered in Mexico ahead of the country's June 6 midterm elections. And today, as you enjoy hugs and barbecue with people you haven't seen in a year, remember this. All gave some, but some gave all. Most people probably know Sandra Oh from her roles in Killing Eve and as Christina Yang in the hit show Grey's Anatomy. But Sandra really got her first big break in the 1994 film Double Happiness. She played Jade Lee, a young actress trying to break free of her disapproving Chinese-Canadian parents. Sandra is actually Korean-Canadian, but she also worried about her own family's reaction when she decided to skip college and pursue acting. During the pandemic, with Asian-Americans facing a rising tide in violence and other hate crimes, O has been speaking out. And that's where Jen and Tracy's conversation begins, with Tracy wondering just how Sandra's been doing over the past year. For me, I, I would really like to know, like, how how has this last year changed what's on your mind and what, what you think about and what you choose to put your energy into? This past year, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm wondering how it is for you. I've just been thinking so many... The dismantling of, of systems, you know, every single system that we participate... Uh, but let's keep it in, you know, this this space of, let's say, this podcast of being Asian enough. I'm constantly trying to dismantle that of what it is to be Asian enough, right? So I think that I've just gone deeper in the exploration of how, uh, let me see, the. can I see the water that I'm swimming in? You know, can I awake to the 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 thoughts and the influences and the belief systems that I've been swimming in for my entire life. And I've spent a lot of time thinking and being in that space. You know, I, again, I, I, I will say I do this in my work all the time. I'm constantly trying to dismantle things, not only for myself, but for us. But it's just gotten deeper and, and deeper. You know, I, I, I like speaking about it in terms of my work. I recently finished two projects. Uh, one is a film. It's like a, a psychological horror called Umma written and directed by Iris Shim. And we did that during COVID in, in October, November. And I just finished a, a half hour show for um, Netflix called The Chair uh, by Amanda Peet. And those two pieces, I feel, are working at dismantling certain belief systems that I feel like I know I have been trapped in. Uh, but let's say The Chair, it's really about our position, let's say, in society, what it is to be working in an education system. And the chair is basically set in a, in a university, a, an English department, and I play the chair, uh, of what it is to be a woman, an Asian woman heading that department. So zeroing in, let's say, of the particular lens of 
racism and violence against Asian Americans, the way that I really try and work to address that is profoundly through my work. You know what I mean? So the deeper that I can go to unlock certain things within ourselves, myself, in our community, and then to show myself or our community in places of normalization and also places where where the characters are full flush characters, that's where I uh, aim my my work. But, you know, also, I, I will say during this time in the past year or two, which is only the first, really, I feel like I felt the change in, let's say, in the industry, I have been excited, very excited that the people who are working with are young Asian women who are directing their own writing. Uh, that's been very, very exciting because I have felt like, oh, there is a shift happening because all these young women are now actually helming their own projects. Well, this is also not something new for you. You've worked with Mina Shum, the filmmaker, several times. So I wonder, like, were you looking to work with Asian female creators even at the start of your career too? And now you're just seeing more of those opportunities to take? Correct. I don't think that I ever, I just wanted to work. When we're talking about the beginning of my career, as mm -hmm. every actress, everyone does, you just want to work. You want to work on, you want to work on the best projects possible. I will say for my career, the majority of people that I've worked with have been women and have been people of color because that's who's hired me. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's nice to have it continuing on. And I will say, yes, I've had a early relationships with two key people, Mina Shum and also playwright Diana Sun. And I've done almost all their work, you know, for the past 20 years, for the past 20 years. And so what's really, really great now is that I am meeting new people, young women, young people who are now having the chance to be able to put their work up and work out and, and have reached out to me. But it's been a, a long time until I feel like I've really felt that change. And that's really only in the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you just touched on, talking about what you're focused on right now, even the idea of dismantling systems in your work that I feel like we're going to want to expand on in this conversation. But one thing I wanted to bring up because it happened recently was in March, while you were working on one of these projects, the chair in Pittsburgh, you made this surprise appearance at a Stop Asian Hate rally. And that moment went viral. It felt so spontaneous. It, it felt was. like... It was so spontaneous. <laughs> it was so spontaneous. It was totally spontaneous. But you know, it's, it's these things that go viral. They're real. You can't predict them. The only thing that I can, it, I, it's just, it, it's from the heart. You know, yes, I was working on the chair. Atlanta happened. It was within yeah. that week. And so it was the Saturday. Uh, uh, so I had the day off and I was just like, there has got to be a rally. I need to be with people. Mm. So I actually, put out an email to the entire crew and cast. It's like our fellow Asian crew members really, really felt supported by our crew. It was really great. And so we all headed down to this area in Pittsburgh and it was a, a nice small rally. And then I, I just felt so moved to speak. Can everyone hear me? for organizing this just to give us an opportunity 
together and to stand together and to feel each other. For many of us in our community, this is the first time we were even able to voice our, our fear and our anger. And I really am so grateful for everyone willing to willing to listen. I'm going to be very, very brief. But one thing that I know many of us in our community are very scared. And I understand that. And one way to kind of go through and get through our fear is to reach out to our communities. Reach out. Everyone here, I will, I will offer, I will challenge everyone here. If you see something, will you help me? Yeah! If you see one of our sisters and brothers in need, will you help us? Yeah! And so we must understand, as Asian Americans, we just need to reach out our hand to our sisters and brothers and say, help me, and I'm here. And just for one thing, I am proud to be Asian! I felt so moved to speak and to speak about mostly the pride, mostly honestly, that t-shirt. It's just to remember that even through the fear, even through the fear, we belong, you know? And I just wanted to uh, voice that for a moment and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it resonated with people. We'll have more from my colleagues, Jen Yamato and Tracy Brown's conversation with Sandra Oh from the Asian Enough podcast right after this break. And we're back. We pick up our conversation with actress Sandra Oh and my Asian Enough podcast colleagues, Jen Yamato and Tracy Brown. Sandra's chant of, I am proud to be Asian, I belong here, at a rally this past March went viral. And Jen says it was a really moving and meaningful moment for so many people, including herself. You led the the crowd in a chant. And so there's something really powerful about not just you speaking to people, but urging them to speak themselves. You know, there's something very powerful in saying, I am proud to be Asian. I belong here. Say it with me. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's also something that we do need. It's not, the thing is, is like, everyone is not the same. We have certain things in, in Asian culture, in Eastern cultures that are kind of similar. And those also should be honored. There's real benefit to being thoughtful, to being discerning, to being respectful. Let's shout together. Let's be together. Let's raise our voices together, which is actually really not so much in our culture. But honestly, body, physical-wise, to be able to raise your voice and say something is, is physicalizing the first act of, of, of what it is to declare your, your space and your personhood in a crowd of people. And then it was really to say, there's like, you know, a couple hundred people here. Could you turn to someone and, and, and ask them for help or whatever? Just, just try it. It was just really just to kind of claim our, our space. Yeah, the words, I am proud to be Asian, were so powerful for me because growing up, it took me a while to, to get to that place. And I'm, I'm fine and I'm very much proud to be Asian. But um, I think vocalizing that is something that I still, I don't want to say struggle with, but it's it's... It's a balance. Like, I, it, I never felt like I needed to say it as much. But just to go back for a second, you grew up in a small town in Canada. Your parents are immigrants from Korea. How did you form your identity there growing up as a kid? 
You know, honestly, I'm still unraveling that. You know, I had a very, very typical immigrant experience. I'll say a typical Korean-American, Korean-Canadian experience where my parents came on the wave of the 60s and went into the professional class. You know, late 70s and 80s, the kind of merchant class where all the shops and the dry cleaning stores, all that kind of opened up, right? I grew up in a small town in Canada. All my friends were white, went to a Korean church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Church, church, church. Uh, and then I went to uh, the National Theater School. Again, mostly all white. I didn't really have an experience of meeting fellow Asian artists, actors or writers or musicians until honestly I was in my uh, early 20s. I moved to Toronto. And uh, do you know Jean Yoon? Have you ever seen the show um, Kim's Convenience? Okay. Of course. Yeah, right? So Jean plays my mom. I also know Paul. Oh, Paul Soon Hyung Lee. Um, he plays the dad in Kim's Convenience. They are probably some of the first people I met when I went to Toronto. And it was just like, I remember, I remember this so well. Jean did this amazing piece about Yoko Ono. And that was the first time I started rethinking my thoughts about Yoko Ono. Was when Jean started, she did this project called the Yoko Ono Project. And it really affected me deeply. And that even that, I started, started the beginning of dismantling what my belief system was about Yoko Ono. Which was? Which was probably not when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, you'd be thrown just for random, like, you know, yeehaws, like driving out, you know, from the outside of a, a car window, you know what I mean? Would be throwing this name out. And when I was young, I did not know exactly who she was, what it was, but I knew it was bad, whoever this person was. And then when you then start knowing about the Beatles, so much of the belief of, of the history of, of the Beatles were about vilifying Yoko Ono instead of, <laughs> instead of saying that she was the guide to, to help him find his next step of artistry. I mean, she's the artist. He was following her. So only when I started understanding her as an individual artist did I start going, wait, that's not right. Why do I have a problem with her? Most I had a problem with her, not, not her, obviously, being called her because it was a negative racist epithet, Yeah. right? And I didn't want, want to be identified. My God. So I would say the full circle of it was, so in 19, I was going to go host uh, Saturday Night Live. And I met Yoko Ono in an airport. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I was sweating. I, and I cried after. So I was just sweating. And then also I was able to go up to her and just give her my thanks. I mean, I got to tell you, I was bowing like crazy. Now, I'm, I'm very curious to know this, actually, from your experience growing up. And this is entirely to do with the fact that we actually have not had yet guests on our show who grew up outside of America. And I would love to know if you have a perspective on the Asian Canadian experience as being similar or distinct from, you know, an Asian American experience. That's a really good question. The entire ethos of what it is to be Canadian is different than what it is to be American. American is a melting pot. Canadian is a mosaic. 
And there seems to be a place for everyone. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist because it totally does. But there is more of an acceptance of different ethnicities, different languages. And I don't know whether the acceptance is because the population is small. You're not rivaling the white population because Canada is still fairly white. You know what I mean? But then there's this. What I felt always kind of jealous of, of uh, Asian Americans, that there were enough people to really form a community. Like in Canada, from my experience, I was kind of like the only person, the only person of color, the only Asian person. And then if in the Asian-nesses, <laughs> like the only Korean one, right? And I also, I will say, I grew up in a fairly small town. So like coming into Toronto, there was at least a, a larger community. But then, you know, going to like New York or then people in LA or I, I met, the first time I went to the Asian American Film Festival in in, in, in San Francisco, it blew my mind. <laughs> it blew my mind. And that was, for me, was so exciting. So then I felt like I got a much more diverse experience of different Asian Americans. Yeah. As you just mentioned, you know, coming from a different generation, growing up in a small town, with, with your background, like how did you tell your parents you wanted to be an actor? Well, I think that they knew from the very beginning that it was probably going to happen. Because example, like, it's like, if you make it to grade five piano, then you can keep dancing. That was straight <laughs> off. The whole performance aspect of it was there from the very beginning. And they witnessed it. So I would say during my high school period coming into, then you have to make the decision for university. That's when it really you know, shit hit the fan. I'm not going to go to university. I want to go to theater school. This is what I want to do. Like many um, East Asian child of immigrants, you know, uh, my whole family is very educated. I would, I, I'm not, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I've got a degree from the National Theater School. That's, that's my degree. And your parents were totally cool with it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were so cool with it. They were really, really cool with me not, you know, taking that scholarship from, you know, Carleton University. Um, no, it, it was really, it was really, very difficult. But it's in the way that I'm exceptionally grateful for. It was a very classic thing of like, when you're starting to separate from your parents at that correct age, or at least at the age that I was, which was my late teens, that's the right time to do it. That is the right time to try and find your voice and to try and um, surpass whatever and break away from whatever the ties that you have with your, with your parents. And it's a very complicated, as it always is, familial relationship that we have within our community. The responsibility, the burden, and the lack of openness is is very present in in our in our community. I just had um, a very 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 strong desire and calling and ambition, and I will say I have a really fairly good relationship with my my family and my parents. Yeah, I was at the Golden Globes the night that you won. Oh my god! <laughs> I was in the crowd covering for the LA Times and I looked, as soon as you went, I looked at your parents and they were so happy. And 
later on, I went up to them and I asked them how they felt. And they told me that they were so proud of you. And I knew that even just putting those words in print would be deeply meaningful to all the Asian kids out there who need to hear that from their parents. Mm -hmm. I think it's very obvious from the, the mere fact that you mention your parents a lot and and you took them with you to these big nights in your in your life and your career that you are close and it's been really nice to see yeah you know I, I I I've done it just because I've wanted to and then I've been happy that I think that it can take on another meaning you, you know for those of us who have not been able to have that relationship with our parents or share things or have them kind of understand or have them have pride in the decisions that we've that we've made not that they're conscious about this at all it's like it's really great that my parents have been a stand-in in some ways i mean hilarious <laughs> i mean like did my mom crack a smile did she did she really <laughs> i'm pretty sure i saw them raise a toast but i'm not sure there was champagne in their glass sure not <laughs> Sure not. Yeah. It's funny though, we talk like a lot of Asian American kids, you know, like or grown kids, as I still consider myself always, have that kind of relationship with their parents. But my parents were in internment camps as babies, Japanese Americans. So they grew up as children in the fifties and sixties with their parents wanting them to go live your life, you know, do what you want. And so they passed that on to to me which I really appreciate, especially in hindsight, uh, and especially the more that I hear other Asian American kids' stories of the opposite. But there's something that you said that is still common to my experience, which is a lack of openness. There was a real lack of, of processing a lot of things. Well, this is clearly what this podcast is. You know what I mean? I, I, processing for ourselves and, and mm -hmm. through that process, hopefully for, for others. For sure. It's very interesting what you're saying, Jen, is because it's like that's a generational thing of how mm -hmm. long you've been here, what your mm -hmm. experience is, and then what the next, because I am a child of immigrants. So I I'm sure, I hope the sociologists studying this stuff of like what happens with this generation, because I will say the people from my generation don't have language, don't have, mm. at least, you know, the Koreans that I know don't have the language. But my friends who are, let's say, in their 30s and mostly who grew up in bigger cities like L.A. Mm -hmm. or New York, Chicago, mm -hmm. have the language. Mm -hmm. And that's a big difference. So I was like, why is that? And, I, you know, I'm sure it makes sense. It's like the very first child of immigrants you want. That's the first largest rejection. And then maybe the next generation can have it be also a point of pride. My sister... Uh, she only spoke Korean until she was about four. You, you know, she started going to kindergarten in English and didn't understand anything. And then my parents freaked out. <laughs> my parents freaked out and only then would then try for her to speak English. You know what I mean? And that is a, one of the big first steps of the assimilation. At least definitely in the, in the time that I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, you didn't want to know the language. You didn't want to speak the language. It othered you in, in a way that, that I don't think, hopefully, that it doesn't other you now. And to not have that defined by any other, you know, overarching group of people, culture, belief system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All this processing is very helpful. 
Honestly, this podcast is like therapy to me. And I find the energy that you're bringing, Sandra, is very encouraging. I appreciate that because it's encouraging, you know? Yes. (laughs) Because it's also like really exciting to me to meet people like yourselves and young people like yourselves who it's just like, what can, what can we talk about? You know what I mean? Because it's like, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little further down the line and, and have always felt like a canary in the coal mine to say, I want to report back to you what I've seen and let's talk about it. So maybe it will help us all process it. And then you can continue that on. I mean, I'm going to continue on my work too, but even this space of the podcast world, which I love podcasts, you know, and I, and, and I was so excited when your podcast first came out. It's like, it's like, yeah, let's have this long form conversation where we can spend some time unspooling our thoughts. We'll wrap up Jenny Amato and Tracy Brown's conversation with Sandra Oh from the Asian Enough podcast right after this. We're back. Here's a conclusion of our conversation with actress Sandra Oh and my Asian Enough podcast colleagues, Jenny Amato and Tracy Brown. Lots of people still ask Sandra if she'd ever want to reprise her role as Dr. Christina Yang in Grey's Anatomy. Well, sorry, fans. It's very rare, I should say, to be able to see in, in such a way the impact of a character. It, you know what I mean? You, you do, in some ways, you do your work as a bubble and you let it go. You know, and I had I, I left that show, my God, seven years ago almost. So I in my mind it's it's gone, but for a lot of people it's still very much alive. And while I understand and I love it, I have moved on. So please come with me. <laughs> so please come with me to killing Eve and, and onto the chair and onto the other projects because this is also how we have moved on as well. You know what I mean? With all the joy, it's like, come see then the characters that I'm playing that are much more deeply integrated in our, our let's just say, one aspect, the Asian American experience. You know, I, I will say this one thing in the chair, you know, I felt it was amazing. So the wonderful man, Mr. Lee, he plays my dad. He plays my dad. And when I was working it out with Amanda, I was just like, Amanda, just leave all his dialogue in Korean. It's fine. I understand what he's saying. And it's more comfortable for him. Mr. Lee never acted before. And that Mr. Lee is your castmate, Ji Young Lee. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Just, it's just like never acted. Wonderful man. And, and again, this is about our bench. Uh, how how to deepen our bench. So there are um, there are things that we have to shift around. But there is this scene where, so my character uh, uh, has a daughter and my daughter is not of the same race. I'll just, just say it that. And, and my father is speaking Korean to me. I'm trying to speak in English to my daughter. I'm trying to, I'm in the middle, really my character is just caught in the middle, mostly in all aspects in this show. And I just, I felt something really special going on in having an argument with my dad in Korean and English, and then having to speak to my child in English. But that she, having her also understanding Korean, 
but also understanding English and then trying to bring the elements of her ethnicity into it. It was very fulfilling because I just thought this is a story that I want to tell where many of us have multiple things going on, have the richness of having to speak another language other than English to our, our, our parents and then having to bridge from our, our parents to our children and how, how satisfying that was. I don't want to worry about people who might not understand about my experience. I am only concerned with people who are interested in this experience. I mean, there's enough Marvel movies out there. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to do something different here. So you don't have to speak Korean. But if you know what it is to be in that place of being squeezed at all ends, it's like hopefully you would enjoy the chair. I like that sentiment too because it's also like relieving ourselves of expending the energy of explaining ourselves to the people who don't who won't care who don't want to take the time to learn yeah yeah or it's just like it's just like just watch it mm. just watch it enjoy it but to many people just hearing that language and seeing someone interact will reflect their own experience deeply this is what i'm interested in now a multi-level place where culture and language is always flowing through us. The piece is about me being the chair of an English department. I, honestly, my character's name is Jun Kim. Again, it's not like, I'm not doing it for you people who don't understand different names. But it's like, it's nice to be able to hear a name that you might not be familiar with, but all the other characters are saying my name and saying my name correctly. That it's like these things of, you know, I've thought this also because the the chair is about university setting and education. There's so much stress and so much focus in particular our community of a certain type of post-secondary education. And I really think it's bull****. <laughs> I really, really think this is bull****. So these things of what it is to be either successful or American or fitting in or all those things, these structures, I think that we have to really, really question them and really whether it's good for our souls as Asian Americans. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor <laughs> just to have you on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's been an honor just to be on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jenna Tracy. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the Los Angeles Times. And a heads up on our May 21st Germ Hunters episode and the search for the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been updated with this clarification. Our interview subject, Peter Daszak, has long worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's one of the labs that might be implicated by the lab leak theory. And to further clarify that many of those advocating investigation of the lab leak hypothesis believe such a leak would have been an accident. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Julia Turner and Shani Hilton are our editors. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and the theme music is by Andrew Epic. Special thanks to Jen Yamato, Tracy Brown, and all the gang working on the LA Times Asian Enough podcast. Make sure to follow them as well. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this madre. Gracias. <laughs>